Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the heart of New York City in Rockefeller Center at Newsstand Studios. Joined as usual with Nastasia of the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? I'm good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Anything Anything fun happening? No, just drove from Connecticut. Oh, wait, Joe from... Now, wait. Joe from Connecticut? Yeah. Who's Joe from Connecticut? You drove from... Drove. Cal- oh, drove. 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 Nastasia's life's full of Joes. She's got like 8,000 Joes on the line, so if I, you know, for all I know, there could be a Joe from Connecticut. Yeah. Hmm. Got, as usual, uh, working the panels here, Joe Hazen, how you doing? I'm doing great. great. How are you? You, you look a little, a little hot, hot and sweaty. And sweaty. Oh, man, it's just one F up after the next. You know, I, uh, by the way, is John on the horn or is he too sick to get on the horn? He's, He's too, too sick, sick to join us tonight. Yeah, John, please, please, Booker and Dax people, give our customer service representative uh, a little bit of a break for a day or two. Let him, let him heal his, his, uh, his meat sack. He needs to, you know... Uh, Get back to get back to health, uh, but we do have Jackie Molecules, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. I'm here and exciting. I'm watching you on YouTube's live stream that our all access Patreons can also get. Oh crap! Um, what am I doing right now? Kind of, what am I doing right now? Well, you're you're slightly delayed. You have your hand up now. Staz just turned her head. Now yeah. you just looked at the camera. A, I, be, I believe yeah. you. Know. It's a nine, it's a nine second, second delay. delay. Uh, I <laughs> now you're doing like a. We're in space. You're doing an up and down thing with your hand. I don't know what that uh, is. Uh, okay, okay. That was me trying to see if you could see what I was doing. All right, 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 right. It's Enough delayed of that. for oh, when I smack yeah. you and tell you to keep my name out of your mouth. No, I got to. I got to keep wow. your. I got to keep your Connecticut Joe's name out of my effing mouth. You keep my Connecticut Joe's name out of your effing mouth. Nastasi and I decided we're going to use that all the time. So, like, so, like, uh, watch this. I was making pizza. I was making some pizza. Oh, keep pizza out of your... No, then you have to insult my pizza, and then I have to say, keep my pizza out of your effing mouth! Like that. <laughs> I think it can be used for anything, you know what I mean? Too soon? No, no? not too soon. Uh, okay, so back to why I'm so hot. I'll tell you this. Today is the second closest I've ever come to not actually making it in because of a bike accident. Mm-hmm. Nastasia almost didn't make it home once, in Brooklyn when she used to bike because she hit a pothole that would have swallowed a freaking tank in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's yeah. the land of potholes. Yeah. It's yeah. bananas. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, she got swallowed by a pothole. Because the thing is this, you look over at the car that's trying to kill you, you hit the pothole, you can't win. There's no winning. Anyway, remember that? Uh, so anyway, so I'm going down the street, and for those of you that bike in New York, right, there are these cars that they get as close as they can to like the Jersey barriers or whatever during the construction things. And it's like, yo, we're still here. We're still here. You know what I mean? And so I'm biking next to one, and I'm like, you know what? F it. I'm going to take it. And you're on a city bike, which is like a giant kludge of a piece of garbage, right? And so you're like, I got like two, three millimeters. I got two, three millimeters between me and this guy's window, right? Bam! I clock his, his, his rear view, his side view, with, with, my, uh, with my hand, right? I don't think I did any damage. But if you've ever hit someone's side view with your handlebars... It's like, you're in a Jerry Lewis movie all of a sudden. And like, meanwhile, I'm in between like all these cars, so I'm trying not to hit any other cars. Because if I hit another car, I'm going down. If I go down, I get this. Door opens. You hit my car! And then I'm not coming in. That's it. It's over. You know what I mean? So, thank God, I kept the thing on its wheels, and there was so much traffic. The dude whose side view I punched, his fault, by the way, never caught up to me. So, there you go. Silver linings. Silver linings. What was that movie about? Doesn't matter. Let's go on to questions. Mm, questions. <laughs> well, uh, if you're listening on Patreon, uh, are you are you doing the, the book? Usually, John says what's coming up next and stuff. Are you going to do that? What's coming up next? Uh, I think it's the mushroom guys next. I can figure it out. No, oh, great. I mean, I may be late, but it's also good that at least one of us is prepared. Uh, call in your questions to. 917-410-1507. That's uh, 917-410-1507. Listen, a little tip for you guys. And maybe we should do something better about this on the Patreon. Nastasia and I don't go out as much as we should. Nastasia goes out more than I do. Whenever I ask her for recommendations, she clams up and looks at me like I'm an a-hole. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, where I go, no, none of our people want to go. Why? But... Where do you go? Just like weird, really weird places. Um, Why? Well, I mean, isn't that they exactly? want like the tasting menu at the blah? Why do you blah, always assume that you n- that uh, that I know our people? Yeah, because you you're often wrong. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Yeah. For uh, April first. Oh. Anyway, while you're trying to figure April out April fifth, James Hoffman. Is that next week? Yep. And the then coffee, April, ma- the coffee master. April twelfth, Adam DiMartino and Phoebe Tran. 
The Mushroom People. The Mushroom People. And then April 19th, Oliver Millman. You sound enthused, man. You should do this for a living. Well, that's the insect guy. That's cool. You should just, uh, you know, you should do this for a living. You you should be... I'm not as enthused as John. I want to imagine Nastasia Lopez, world's worst hype man. Like, you you could make... Any rapper, like, the audience just be like, oh. John is, is John, like, is John 10,000 times better? I didn't realize. I don't know. John Jack, is what do you, Jack, me. what do you think? No coffee. James Hoffman. Uh, no comment. Wait, he's not going to drink coffee or he can't come on? No coffee. James Hoffman. No James Hoffman, therefore no coffee. All right, well. Okay. All right. Anyways, so what else were we, we were talking about something else first. Questions. By the way, very quickly, um, immediate comments from the Discord about people listening that would be interested in weird places. Because, after all, this podcast is weird as hell to begin with, says the uh, Discord The places user. I go, though, like, usually can't. It's like a weird night, in. you know? Yeah. But that's what they love best. But that they'll, that'll they never happen again. I'm testing live feed for Joe, so I'm temporary. Okay. okay yeah, again, good information for everyone to know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, John, so anyway, man. my point is this, is that... Like, okay, so, like, yeah, I'm invited to weird stuff. So yesterday, uh, La La Maison du Whisky, La Maison du Whisky, I don't have John here to pronounce it for me, like, did a launch of this thing called Artist Series, where these guys, they're in Paris, they go and they buy individual casks from some well-known and some not as well-known different distilleries around the world, and they bottle, like, the single cask. So I went to their, the launch of this product, and it was great, but how the hell is anyone going to buy it? Because literally, I walked up to the, to the, you know, one of the people who runs it, I asked her, I was like, how the hell do you guys, how is it that you even fly all of these people to New York and have this event when, like, some total of the number of bottles of this thing is 143, and you just poured one of them? Like, what the hell is this? And she was like, I don't know, you know, no say. Well, I don't know what they, how do you say it in French? How do you say I don't know in French? Uh, je ne sais pas. There you go. Je ne sais pas. And I'm like, I don't know. We don't do it to make money. I'm like, well, why do you do it? I wish we could have a business where we made no money and it was okay. Right, Stas? Then you, yeah. I mean, we don't make any money, but it's not okay. Yeah. Yeah, anyways. Uh, congratulations to uh, Questlove on his, uh, on his what's it called, Oscar, right? Oscar, yeah. yeah. Oscar, nice. A little, uh, little overshadowed, maybe, by what happened just before he got it. But <laughs> anyway. Okay. So if you're going to call and ask for a recommendation, well, here's what I recommend. I recommend we put these things out on the Discord so the people who go out more than we do to kind of normal restaurants... Like, like I'm more like, I'm better at, uh, you know, where do I buy weird ingredients? Or, you know, like, if you're in a town that I've been to a lot, like, what's the good cheese shop? Like, that's what I'm good at. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Nastasia is good at, like, you know, where's the fun place where weirdos hang out? Or, like, you know, how do you find X, Y, or Z, like, like uh, strange happening in, in a particular locale? That's what she's good at. But, like... But like, that doesn't happen twice, you but, know. But the hottest, the hottest restaurants, like I don't really, I don't really go that often to the hottest restaurants anymore. Eustace? No, I do not. Do you enjoy going to the hottest restaurants? No, I do not. <laughs> okay, but the Patreon people, I'm sure I a lot of our Patreon too. people know it. What? I said I stopped doing that also, like the hottest new restaurants. Why? I don't know. Kind of gets tired. Wow. 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 We're, we're, just, we're just a bunch of mopey moes here today, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Man. In case we have time, which we won't, uh, if we need to unmope, my, my cousin James told me a fantastic joke, and it's not even, uh, it's not even offensive too much. Anyway, uh, but I, I doubt we'll have time. Okay. So, uh, again, and this, is, this goes back to the first question that's on my list. We had uh, last week from Dale Harris. Get this out on the Discord. This is something that should be handled on the Discord. Uh, Boston, New York City, best places for non-alcoholic beverage program. I actually put this out to Derek Brown, uh, who uh, is currently or just formerly of Columbia Room, uh, who d- bunch, does a bunch of amazing non-alc stuff, uh, and also uh, Jackson Cannon in Boston. I haven't heard back the names of the programs yet, uh, so I don't know what to tell you, Dale. I, I you know, like I want people in the uh, who are who are uh, who are you know listening in the in the. Um, Discord to, to help out, you know. Biff Dit writes in, "Hey Dave, have you had we? I've always think it's pronounced Ouija, but I don't know. W e g e. I've always since I was a kid pronounced it as Ouija. What do you think, Ouija or Ouija? Ouija sounds bad, so I'm assuming it's Ouija, right? Yeah. It's not Ouija. No. No. And it's not real German. It's not veg veget, right? It's, it's Ouija, right? Yeah. Ouija. Uh, have you had Ouija pretzels from Hanover, Pennsylvania? If not, uh, where can I send a bag to? Their top drawer. 
Well, uh, Biff, I have had them many times. Uh, so we, it, they don't really sell them that much around here anymore. The brand of record that you get here, you still get uh, Schneiders every once in a while, but for some reason for the past 20-something years, Schneiders have been impossibly stale. I don't know why. Schneiders is also the only brand that uses the clear salt. You know what I'm talking about, the clear pretzel mm-hmm. salt? Are you a clear salt or a white salt gal? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter? Mm-mm. All right. All right. Remember when we were uh, at the bar and I was serving hard pretzels and a friend of yours, like a, 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 rest- a restaurateur, came in. He's like, you should serve soft pretzels. What did I tell him? No. I said, get your own place, jerk. Oh, and he's like, yeah. he's, like, he's like, I have my own place. I was like, then serve soft pretzels there and leave me alone. Uh, I like soft pretzels, but I love hard pretzels. Put it that way. Uh, so I used to get them. Uh, and you know what? They're go- I used to be like very much more of a purist on pretzels than I am uh, today. Um, so, you know, I like them. They're good. But they contain a small amount of fat. Uh, and I used to be 100% against any fat at all in a hard pretzel because uh, it tends to make the texture of the pretzel a little more cracker-like. So a little bit, a little bit less shattering on the tooth. And the way that you don't – like if you're going to use all-purpose flour and you don't use uh, uh, fat, you're hosed because it's going to be too hard because of all the protein. But if you use Snavely's, which is what you're supposed to use, soft pastry flour – uh, you know, not bleached, but soft pastry flour, then you're going to be fine. Uh, they use a little bit, but you know what? It's not cracker-like like Bachman's is, uh, which is always disappointing. So I do actually enjoy their pretzels, and they are very old school. And my, I believe, I forget whether it was that one or one very close to it that uh, my great uncle worked for in the Depression was very close to that, my great uncle Luke. Uh, so yes, I do appreciate them. But my real appreciation for fat-containing pretzels, if you go to Dietrich, Dietrich's, I think, Meats in uh, out, out past uh, Allentown uh, in Pennsylvania, near where Nastasia's mom comes from, um, there's a meat store right on the road there. And they have this pretzel whose name I can't remember, but it's, like, coated in butter and then dried hard. So, like, that, like, was so far in the fat, dry pretzel thing that I was all of a sudden, I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I'm getting older, so I'm actually getting softer in my old age about some things. Can you believe that, Stas? Aren't you, isn't your birthday tomorrow? My birthday is tomorrow. What are you doing? Uh, well, I was planning on getting up in the morning, puttering around, doing some work, like uh, maybe taking a shower, shaving, doing some more work. Then I was going to like uh, go shopping for dinner, cook it, and then maybe go to bed. Wow. <laughs> Exciting. For all of your, like, family, you know, gatherings and all the family stuff. I, no I cook at all of those. Okay. Mm. And it's during the week. Are you going to at least cook something exciting? Jen's like, Jen's like, you want to go out? I'm like, where? I'm going out on Friday anyway because, like, one of her friends is coming into town. You know, our friends, actually. So I'm going out on Friday. I don't want to go out, like, three times. What am I? What am I, 20? Going out three times a week? I had to go to this event yesterday. Am I going to cook something special? I don't know. I have some magic pork in the freezer. I might cook myself some magic pork. Okay. You know? What, do you, what should I have with the magic pork, people? Anyone? I might use my new waterless cookery. I don't have time now to go into the ins and outs of waterless cookery, but these like weird aluminum pots from the 30s that I have, I've been doing all of my mashed potatoes in them and cooking them without water. So you just, cl- you, literally, it's the craziest thing in the world. You just put dry potatoes into a, washed with the peel on, into a dry pot. You with me so far? Dry potatoes into a dry pot. And the trick is, is you have to almost fill the pot. Like as full as the pot is, can go, that's how much you should use. Then you put the lid on, and you turn on the, the heat until you can feel the steam hit the top of the, of the lid. And then as soon as that happens, you turn it way down just so that the lid stays hot. And as long as the lid is hot, you have enough flame to be vaporizing the water, but not enough to have the steam leaving it. And the potatoes are cooked in their own water, but they don't dry out like they do in an oven. So you can let them rock for a long, long time. And all that happens is the part of the skin that, get, that is actually touching the bottom of the pan gets brown and thick, but not bad, actually, because I've eaten it. And then what you do is you... you do you guys own grill, grill grill gloves? Grill gloves? No. So I like these grill gloves. I use them at. I, you you have some, Jack? No, I don't. You should get some. Uh, don't be worried about the fact that they're black because it turns out that most of the heat from the grill is is not in uh, 
not in a range that matters anyway. So a white glove might as well be black in the infrared, which is where the heat is. So don't think that that they're not that good just because they're they're black color. Don't don't think that they need to be. I mean, if they're reflective, that's better because they'll take on less stuff. But once it's not reflective, it doesn't matter anymore what color the glove is. And um, they're like two three layers. So, but they're they're. There's not a lot of liquid on the outside of the potato, right? So I can literally put on these grill gloves, go right into the pot, pick up the, like, steaming hot potato, and then just take the peel off with a petty knife, right? And just that little bit of peel that I'm holding on to with the, with the petty doesn't burn my thumb. I mean, I also don't feel very much heat with my thumb. And so I can peel these potatoes, like, while they're steaming hot, leave the jackets on so I lose very little. And, you know, I, yeah, I think it tastes maybe better. I don't know. I haven't done a side-by-side, -side, but I think it's a good way to cook the potatoes. So maybe I'll do that tomorrow, Nastasia. Okay. Is that enough of a... What kind of gravy should I have? I don't know. I don't know. I've been making a lot of mushroom gravy, so I'm kind of sick of it. What kind of gravy should I make? I don't know. What kind of gravy do you like? Do you not like gravy? I don't usually make it, no. What about you, Jack or Joe? What's your gravy preferences? Mushroom gravy sounds good. But I just made a mushroom gravy. I make a really good mushroom yeah, I don't, gravy. I don't really know. What about, what about just a pan, pan gravy? gravy? Yeah, but I do all low-temp cooking, so there's no pan, there's no pan stuff left. No. No. This is why I like, when I, whenever I do, um, like, birds, boids, I like to... Uh, I like to bone them so I can make a gravy with the bones before I bother cooking them. You know what I mean? I like, I like a two-front thing. But I don't think I want a chicken gravy with a pork. I mean, I have a bunch of chicken bones in my fridge. Freezer, rather. I mean, who doesn't, right? Anyway. Do you save your chicken bones in the freezer? No. You don't have chicken bones. You don't like to cut up animals when you're alone. I don't... Yeah, I don't cook a lot. Okay. <laughs> uh, from... Uh, wait, did we get this? Oh, there's another one. Josh Kaplan. I'm a fine dining chef in D.C. headed to New York City for a pizza tour. I built a list from uh, Mike Portnoy's reviews and asked some chef friends about their favorite spots. Are there any places not to be missed? I mean, I'm not a freak. I'm not on point. I'm, I'm useless. I'm, I'm a useless person. You guys got to ask me questions like I know the answers to, like exactly what's the difference between like uh, a soft pastry flour, an all-purpose flour, and a bread flour. Here, I can help you out. Best pizza in New York. I can't help you so much. Jack, you used to eat pizza in New York. And, and, and Joe, you eat pizza in New York. What do you like? Are you fancy pizza people or cheap pizza people? I can tell you a good dollar slice. The one by What's your dollar slice? Wait, I'm, I'm interested in that answer. Well, I mean, it's not good. It's good for a dollar. It's like, you know, like a, <laughs> like a, a, a Kia is a terrible Bentley, right? But it's not a bad Kia. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. you know, yeah. if, if you're yeah. walking into a place and, you, and you're like, I want a slice... I'm going to hand you $1 bill. They're going to hand you like a sallow piece of garbage with like a lot of potato starch mixed in with the cheese so that the cheese is stretched. And you're like, I get it. That's fine. You know what I mean? And the one on 6th Avenue, I think, is decent for that. 6th Avenue and 8th. Uh, and yeah, it's good. Right? You like that one, right, Sass? Mm -hmm. Caller, you are on the air. Hey, this is Jacob calling from Des Moines, and I have a moisture management question. And since Dave is the master of moisture... I figured this would be a good place to ask. There you go. All right, what do you got for me? Okay, so I am really curious about the method of making puffy, crispy skin roasted pork. Oh, yeah. And I have, I have seen many, many iterations of it. I've seen the Marco Pierre White one where he literally just rubs some oil on it and puts it in a low oven, and it gets insane. I've seen a Chinese method where they prick it with, like, the Chinese equivalent of, like, a jacquard and then brush it with vinegar and then put a layer of rock salt on it and then roast it and then broil it. I've seen some random guy on TikTok who essentially shallow braises it uh, and smokes it and then finishes it under the broiler, and I am just curious about what's going on. Can you kind of tell all the nice folks at home how to succeed at this process? And then ultimately what my main question is, what I really want to figure out is, can I cook the pork ahead of time if I were to do, for instance, an event off-site, cook the pork ahead of time without puffing the skin, and then bring it to the site and puff the skin on-site? Absolutely, you can. Uh, now, it's so it's funny. It's a, it's, a good, it's a good question. Most of the jacarding and, uh, like, uh, pricking or the way that uh, the uh, modernist cuisine guys used to do it with a dog brush, make sure you get a fresh dog brush. You know what I'm talking about with the dog brush, right? The one with all the tiny yeah. wires on it? Yeah. Uh, that they yep. use on duck breast, but I think they also use it on pork. Or if you look at like um, a lot of the um, 
you know, Chinese language, uh, pork, uh, YouTubes, you'll see them like, like multiply stabbing the skin a bunch of time. And that's really just to kind of like help it, um, help it render, but Ren- you, yeah, render the fat, right, render right, right. The interesting thing sense. comes like salt obviously <laughs> is going to draw some moisture out as well as make it taste uh, good. Right. Um, the, the interesting question is always like some people are painting it with an acidic paint on top. And some people are painting it with a basic paint on top, right? Uh, like baking soda, for instance. And sure. uh, I have never, like, so what's funny is, is that anytime you take a, most of those things aren't affecting the fat itself. They're affecting the connective tissue under the fat, right? And so um, anytime you, and that, which is protein-based, and anytime you shift a, a protein away from what's known as its isoelectric point, uh, you induce changes, right? So... The, the other thing is that baking soda will shift it towards uh, brown because it also shifts Maillard and browning reactions into high gear, whereas shifting it towards acidic will keep it blonder. So, like, the more acidic it is, and I, I, I haven't tested exactly which effect is going to be better on the collagen to break it apart and cause it to, to puff up much, but it's interesting that both are used, and it just goes to show how, uh, like, <laughs> the same chemistry in two opposite directions can have kind of similar effects. But I, again, I haven't run it down on pork skin. It is something that I was going to do for the book, but then so many other people are working on it. And I figured that if I tried to tackle crispy pork skin, I would be accused of like going outside of my wheelhouse. So <laughs> I kind of stopped. Play, play, plagiary or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I kind of stopped looking into it. But um, whether or not you can cook it ahead of time, for sure, the issue is really just drying that skin out uh, in advance, right? So what I would do is um, I would if you're let's say let's just say we're doing belly. I don't you didn't say you were, but let's just say we're doing belly. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's going to be belly. Keep the piece as big as you can, right? Also, um, right. just be aware that uh, you know how like. There are certain muscles in the belly that tend to dry out more if you're going to low temp. If you're going to do a traditional braise, right. uh, then kind of the gelatin uh, from the connective tissue kind of weeps all over everything and tends to moisten the drier muscles. But in a low temp cook where the, the collagen uh, becomes soft but doesn't actually completely bleed out into the entire mass of right. meat, those muscles can end up tasting a little drier than you would like in, in a pork belly. So, But I would keep the piece right. as big as you can, right? Low temp it, and then chill right. it all the way down until it regels, okay? Until it's a solid mass again, and the skin is, is, is soft. And not, I mean, sorry, regelled, not soft. Uh, and then, then I would cut it into whatever portions you're going to crisp on, and then... Right. I would air dry the skin and, you know, try to protect the meat somewhat from, from drying out and air dry the skin and then do it. And I then, you know, I mean, I've always wanted to. I didn't do it to a side by side where, you know, one side has nothing. One, you know, well, three sides. One is one is the vinegar and one is the baking soda. My my guess is that it's going to be differences of uh, just texture on the on the outside, you know. Um, and then, of course, sure. you have a question. Are you going to pan it? In oil, because that crisps up real nice, or is it just going to be a broil, right? Or are you just going to throw well, it in the oven? The oven's the most dangerous in terms of overcooking the meat at the bottom, drying out the meat. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Right. I've got options there, and that's kind of what, um, I, I guess, another great point that I'm glad you brought up. So the, the site that I'm thinking about doing this at has a wood-fired pizza oven, basically. Um, and if it's possible, I mean, that could be a thing. You could have could impart some nice flavor onto it, perhaps. Um, I also have the Camp Chef portable. It's basically like a pizza oven that you stick on top of a propane burner, but like one of the big, like the 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 bigger, like what do you call it? Almost like a stove. It's got like three propane burners on it that you'll see like a lot of people make like pho with or whatever outside. Right. Um, so I, ha- I have. It's basically like a pizza a pizza attachment that they recommend running around. 600 to 650, 600, 650 degrees, which I think for this purpose would be great. Um, but then I also have like a big walk that I can take with me outside and then just do the oil over the top of it too. Yeah. I mean, look, all, I, 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 again, the, I would test all of these. I think any one of these could make a good product. Just realize that like a wood fired oven where the, let's say the dome of it is getting over 800. And if you do the math, right. the, the difference between 900, 800, 900 degrees and 500, 600 degrees, the difference in radiant energy right. coming off that thing is a lot because 
It doesn't All go right. up linearly. It goes up, um, right? You know, to uh, what is it? Oh my God! It just went out of my head. Six, uh, fourth power, right? So it's like right, and well, and I'll say too, we can we can control the temperature on that oven. Like usually, I do um, a more of a. I'm not going to call it Neapolitan style, but it's more of a Neapolitan style pizza that cooks in like two minutes because we're running it between 70 to 100 degrees. But then I also at the same site did. Um, Detroit style pieces, so I was running that between five and six hundred. So like I can control the temperature. It's it's literally I'm building a fire inside of this thing and like controlling the temperature that way. So I feel after, especially after having successfully done these Detroit style pieces, I feel like I can do anything out of that out of that oven now. But yeah, that was just just another option. That yeah, I, I mean, have, I would but. look if you're comfortable with a particular piece of equipment, that's <laughs> nine tenths of the battle. Especially like you know how many right. times I've seen people show up at events. It's usually events, right? And they're yep. like, I'm going to use this piece of equipment, and I'm sure it's fine. I've never used it before, no. <laughs> but I'm sure it's fine. It's never fine. Have you, do you, know, do you know anybody who, I mean, that's, that's one of my points with my business, um, is that I want to be able to execute uh, a, certain, a certain level of, of execution anywhere. And so I have what I lovingly refer to as a completely mobile kitchen. I have all of this propane cooking equipment or electrical stuff that I can take with me and use because yeah, you go do catering events and stuff and they don't have anything. It's like, but I, I don't, I'm not the type of person that has quote unquote catering equipment. I'm not going to warm everything up, put it in a hot box and then drag it out there and put it on a plate. Um, I would much rather bring cold product and then warm it up on site or finish it on site. Um, so yeah, that's, that's part of the reason that I have so many toys is because I want to be able to execute a high level of, quality uh anywhere yeah well i mean it's also like i mean i think the mistake people make right all the time is they start in the wrong place like you know the equipment that you have right and you know where you're going to be making the food right so design the menu around that around how you're going to make it you don't design the menu (laughs) around what you want you know what i mean i mean right yeah right that's my first question when I have bigger events too. I'm like, what kind of equipment do you guys have there? Like, what can we? Because that's going to di- dictate what's on the menu, you know? Yeah, yeah. Listen, don't um, don't promise your customer an item until you know the particulars of the situation, unless they have infinite money. Right. If they have infinite money, fine. Right. Infinite, you know, money. Sure. As Cindy Lauper famously said, money changes everything. Love her. Yep. All right. Well, listen, good luck. Let us know. Uh, tweet me back uh, with some pictures of your test. I'd love to know what you uh, came down with and how it came out. Tweet me, tweet me back sure. your cooking issues. I appreciate it. Hey, hey, I'll give it a shot. Thanks for the insight. All right. Cool. All right. And now we're going to go uh, to an ad for our favorite fish, Aura King Salmon. And we'll be right back with Cooking Issues. Today's episode brought to you by Aura King Salmon, everybody's favorite fish. Today in the studio, we have Michael Fabro from Aura King Salmon to talk about it. And I was curious about sustainability, you guys have the highest certification possible from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. It was important to have a third-party certification to verify that our practices were sound. Really, the one that most consumers or most uh, Americans look to is this Monterey Bay Seafood Watch program. And they have a, a very simple way to judge it. They have a green, yellow, red system. Green meaning it's a best choice, yellow, is a a good alternative and red is something you should avoid. They look at everything from your feed, your impact on the water and surrounding environment, fish in, fish out ratios, any impact on on wild fisheries. Like Aura King was actually the first marine farmed salmon in the world to score the green or best choice rating. So that was a really significant achievement for us and kind of validated what we've been saying all along. There you go. The only best green choice for salmon aquaculture Aura King Salmon, everybody's favorite fish. And we're back. Uh, Okay, so we have a question here. Um, This is a classics in the field question from Zachary Stewart. I don't know if I have the answer today, but let's see here. Uh, My sister-in-law is uh, is looking for a book uh, that talks about all the cuts of meat from as many animals as possible, Uh, at least pork and beef. It should give the characteristics of the cut, how it is best used, the kind of dishes, and how best to cook it. Trying to learn the things a butcher would know without becoming a butcher. Uh, How to be an informed meat consumer, etc. Thanks for the show and keep up the good work. So, I don't know if there's one book that deals with all of that. The, uh, what is it called? The North American Meat Producers NAMP 
uh, old picture guide of various cuts. And I think we talked about it when Matt was on the show briefly uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's maybe a little outdated, um, but it's an awesome picture book. It's spiral bound and you can take it into the shower with you because it's meant to be like washed down. And, like in case you accidentally cut open a cow next to it and like it bleeds all over the book, your book's going to be fine. Uh, and that's an amazing book. Everyone I know uh, likes it. Uh, but find it used and don't buy it. Don't spend a lot of money on it. Uh, I think the, you know, for one that's a little bit now long in the tooth, it's a little bit old. But the old River Cottage meat book uh, I think is good. Uh, gee, you know, John reads this kind of crap. And next time we have Matt on, I'm going to have uh, – I'm going to have – I'm going to put a pin in it and ask uh, Matt when he comes back on the show because he's going to be coming on semi – like once every other month. Right, Stas? Something like that? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Someone in Discord said on the last call, this is a long-ass call. Okay. I'm keeping up with the comments. Yeah. Well, thanks for slowing down the show for telling me that. Awesome. Uh, Licensed Magician 69 at AOL uh, writes in, Dave once mentioned that he knows why. Wait, that's the guy. Nastasi, in- Nastasi goes this. Nastasi's like, that's the that, same call, guy. that call was long, and here I am. I'm going to make it longer. Nah. That's the guy that just commented this. Really? Awesome. So here I am spending time on your stuff. See? 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 All right. Uh, Dave once mentioned that he knows why electric uh, multi-cookers, a.k.a. Instant Pot, etc., aren't made to reach a full 15 PSI. He did not say specifically why. What's the reason? Okay, so Nastasi and I used to hang out with, occasionally, someone who made these things um, professionally for one of the big-name manufacturers. I won't, say, I won't say who it is or what it is. And... Literally, some of it is this following fact. They're like, well, what do you need the extra, what do you need the extra pressure for, right? So there's a whole range of people who, like, are engineering and making this that aren't necessarily cooks and don't really understand why you would want the extra pressure. Because in truth, right, it doesn't necessarily take that much longer to cook something at 10 PSI than it does to cook it at 15 PSI. It does take a little bit longer at 5 PSI. But uh, they're not sitting down in a kitchen like they would be in the 1910s or 1920s. And frankly, they're not hiring someone in a kitchen. So it used to be that the big manufacturers would hire – they would set up a test kitchen. And people who make food like Unilever still do this. But kitchen manufacturers don't have kitchens anymore where they're hiring people to come up with recipes that are awesome with their equipment to sell to you. I just don't think that's as much of a thing as it was in the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, and so they're not doing like the tests with, like, you know, that we used to do back in the day where you know, we, we get a pressure cooker and we cook products in it at 10 different pressures and see which ones taste best. The answer is 15. Like, like 20 PSI, not better, worse. Like 15 is the answer. So part of it is just not understanding why you would want that extra pressure. They have to over-design it to get it to go to those pressures. It becomes more of a design problem. And also those electric Instapot things, a regular real honest-to-God pressure cooker, you moderate the moderate it yourself. You set the temperature and you moderate it. Uh, in one of these things, there is a pressure relief valve that goes, but they're monitor- they're doing the temperature with just uh, a temperature sensor, right? With like a thermistor, and uh, and so what they're doing is they're choosing a temperature that's not that high. It's above boiling, but it's not that high. I think so that they don't scorch or have any other problems and just make their life easier. And I, I really think that's I really think that's why they do it. Interesting fact. Um, you have to, to to get a pressure cooker to build up pressure. You need to create uh, a little bit of steam, right? Obviously, duh. Uh, and it, the thicker your item is, the bigger of a temperature differential there is between the bottom of the pan and the actual liquid that is at boiling point. So even though the liquid that's boiling is still just at boiling temperature because you don't really have enough solids in your products to increase the boiling point of the water that much, it can be as much as 15 degrees uh, difference in the bottom where the, where the heater is and, and the product is actually boiling in a thicker item than in a thinner item. You always need some superheat at the bottom of a pan. And so very thick items at the bottom of your pressure cooker, you have to use a lot of extra superheat. And then if you... If you gel, if you make a gel layer on the bottom of your pan, like let's say you're thickening in a gravy and you make a gel layer on the bottom of the pan, then all of a sudden you're creating a layer you have to have conduction through and that drastically increases the temperature uh, you need to uh, maintain pressure without scorching. And so I would very much caution you when you're using pressure cookers to make sure that the liquid that's directly touching the bottom of the pan is as thin as possible. That makes sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh... 
Will Robinson wrote in, hey, uh, when Dave was talking uh, slash complaining, is there anything, do I ever talk about things without complaining about them? No. Okay. So like talking is complaining. You don't need to say both. Right. Yeah. Uh, about the measuring cup that came with his Zojirushi rice cooker, rice cooker, uh, uh, was he was he fully aware that the Japanese go is a volume of measurement predominant in rice cookers? No, uh, and I, I wasn't. I was just you know I had never really researched where that measurement came from. So then I looked up a go, and a go is uh, one hundred eighty point four milliliters according to the Wikipedia. If you can believe the Wikipedia, which is for those of you that are keeping track, zero point seven six cup. And so I took my Zoji Rushi. Uh, cup, which hasn't seen water in, I don't know, decades, right? Because I don't get my rice scoop wet. I'm not a crazy person. And damned if it didn't hold 180 milliliters, but you have to meniscus that sucker, like all the way to the top. So it's dribbling everywhere. So thank you, Will, for... It's still a ridiculous unit. And why don't they just call it like rice measure or go? Just tell me go. Don't insult me and call it a cup when it ain't. You know what I mean? Don't insult me. Uh... Do we answer this question about tap cocktails? I know you're going to want to say yes because you hate any question about tap cocktails. I don't think so. All right. Um, Joe Waterhouse writes in, Hey, Dave, I've been thinking about tap cocktails for a while now, while now and wondered if... Uh, oh, this is the one where I keep asking John to reword it because I can't read it on air because it's not... You, re, you read it, you reword it, and I'll, I'll read the next question. All right. Steinberg says, Still thinking about corn tortillas. Can you make nixtamal in a pressure cooker to speed up the process? Uh... I have found that it's not helpful. Uh, what happens is is that when you're making an, so for those of you that you know I don't know haven't been following nixtamalization. So in nixtamalization, you're using a base uh, traditionally either uh, calcium hydroxide, Cal CaOH, or potash, uh, even older because uh, it's harder to make calcium hydroxide. Uh, and you boil corn, dry corn, you know, uh, in uh, don't do it with popcorn, it's a pain in the ass. Regular like you know field corn. Although there's, it's delicious when you do it with really fancy varieties. Oh, you know what? I should nixtamalize some of my Bloody Butcher. Oh, my God. This is going to be so good. Anyway, you boil it in, a, in an alkaline solution, and it, dis- it does a couple of things. It dissolves the outside of the seed coat a little bit and actually turns that into kind of these uh, hydrocolloid-like things that help plasticize the uh, masa that you're making. It also partially gelatinizes the kernels. Uh, so that, you know, some of the starch is, is functionalized, which also gives body to the dough. But you have to do it kind of the right amount. If you overdo it, uh, then too much of the starch is gelatinized, too much of the, you know, too much of the outside is, is kind of wiped off and it's not good. Then after you, you, you boil it, then you soak it for a while at, at a lower temperature, like while it's coming down. Soak it, then you rub off, you know, however much of the outside seed code you want. Then you grind it into masa and that's what is tortillas and, and whatnot. It's masa. You can use it forever you want, but it's masa. If you pressure cook it, it's easy to go too far too fast. You're not really boiling it that long anyway. Uh, and so, you know, it's going to be at a high temperature for so long that uh, it's, it, in my experience, you weren't saving a lot and the odds that you could go over were too high. That was my uh, experience. Anyway. Uh, okay, so you want this to be Yeah, 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 yeah. You, answer, you, you ask me the question. Just reword the question so that I can answer it. Hi, Dave. I've been thinking about tap cocktails for a while now, and I wondered if you could tell me if I'm being very smart or very stupid. If I attached a keg to a cement mixer under pressure with Oh, we CO- did this. Don't do it in the cement mixer. We dealt with this one. Okay. The cement mixer, the problem with the cement mixer, remember, is that how are you going to keep the, the, the tube from getting wrapped around itself and kinking? You're going to spend so much money on a nice rotary fitting... And then you still have to make sure that the rotary fitting spins on center, right? Because the mistake people make is you can't freaking carbonate unless it's under pressure. And I highly recommend you do not stick the CO2 tank into the cement mixer with the keg because if you make a mistake with a keg that's at like, you know, 80 PSI, 100 PSI, if you're doing it at room temperature, that's 80, 100 PSI. If you make a mistake with a CO2 tank and you knock the nipple off the end of a CO2 tank, that's 800 PSI. That's a, that's a rocket. That's a missile. That's not uh, that's not a good idea. Uh, Nicholas says, "Ask, would you recommend any resources or books on how to get the most out of your rotovap?" I think we already answered this one too. No, I, I I don't. There are no good books on rotary evaporation, just because there aren't enough people doing it. Look at cooking issues. The best thing to do, and I know this sounds like a dick move, either get one and find a chemist who is willing to come to your house, pay them in booze, and have them show you how to set it up. And then go on cooking issues or anyone else who writes about using rotary evaporators for cooking and then 
try to learn the difference between what a chemist is trying to do with a rotary evaporator and what you are trying to do with a rotary evaporator because it's very different. But learning the nuts and bolts of running one, actually keeping one in good shape, is a very different thing from learning how to make it taste good. And usually, like, you can't find the same person who's good at both. Does that make sense? Uh, Question. Why do uh, why does meat this is from uh, Jay? Why does meat go dry slash mealy if you sous vide it for too long, even at low temperatures? For larger cuts, I notice it continues uh, even at temperatures lower than desired. Uh, is there a way to prevent this while still breaking down collagen? And if not, does this suggest some steaks are too thick for sous vide? Uh, too thick for sous vide. That's my uh, that's my that's my mental my mental capacity. Too thick for sous vide. Let me ask you before I, I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to give you your time. I have been studying, like, the long extended history of low-temperature cooking going back way far back. You know what we should do sometimes, Stas? Hmm. Were you willing to do uh, – how easy is it to dig in your, in your backyard? Easy. Really? Mm-hmm. So it's not like, like where I was in Connecticut where it's all rocks. Mm-mm. You want to do some underground cooking? No. Why? Okay, yeah, let's do it. Why? I'm not curious. If you say I, no, you said no so quickly. Like I've asked you to do that last summer, and you're like, I don't have time. I don't. I have don't. Interest. But if I do it for the book, I, okay. I didn't say I don't have interest. You know what? You may pay me to be this terrible person. Anyway, uh, here's the issue. So, collagen breaking down. Everyone likes to say, everyone likes to think, and I might have even written back in the day, but it's just simply not true. <clears throat> that once meat fibers, the fibers themselves, right, the muscle fibers reach a certain temperature, that they are relatively static, right? And so then you can keep it at that temperature forever without it overcooking. Simply not the case, right? Simply not true. So uh, what happens is is that it, it's true that most of the movement in a protein like that happens relatively quickly. But then it keeps on, uh, first of all, getting firmer uh, and then also getting, like, mushier as it goes forward, Right. So the more you can drop a temperature below your target temperature, right, the longer you can keep things running. Uh, but certain things, it's almost impossible to keep them from going uh, dry or stringy. So, for instance, like tenderloin has no connective tissue in it at all. And so you start noticing that mushy fibrousness in, uh, in a filet very quickly, which is why, like, I try to keep all of those uh, – cooking times down below an hour on a, on a filet if you're going to do it, right? Like all in, I want that like under an hour. And this is why if you read all my, a lot of my old stuff on the blogs, I'm like, I really don't like cooking chicken longer meat, low temp longer than an hour because once it's reached cooking temperature and stayed there at cooking temperature for more than an hour, I start to notice some of that mushiness. And this is borne out by tests that we've done, terrible tests. Remember those tests, how disgusting they were, Stas, mm-hmm. of just eating skinless unseared meat, like cubes of meat that have been cooked at various times and temperatures. And that's when you notice it, not, not when, you're, when you're finished. And so those meats really want to only be at their target temperature for a little bit of time and then dropped, sometimes substantially. I think you noted that uh, you're dropping down to 125. I, I can't do that in Celsius, but you need to drop a good five degrees below your cooking temperature to really halt a lot of that progression forward in terms of mushiness. Collagen, on the other hand, uh, you need to break down for a long time. And so a lot of times you have to run a compromise between breaking down of collagen and not making this stuff uh, mushy. So it's not necessarily it – is, it is a thickness question, right? In general, with very thick cuts of meat, all I'm looking to do – is hit a target temperature on the very inside for insurance. I'm never doing kind of direct serve on those things. So I'm not really tenderizing those big, big, big cuts. Uh, More when I'm doing tenderizing with uh, sous vide, I'm doing smaller things like uh, ribs or, uh, you know, short ribs or things like things that are high in collagen that you want to like render out for a long time. Things like roasts, I, I tend to just take them up to their target temperature. And even though it takes a long time, uh, it's fine because the part that is kind of what you would call mushy on the outside is going to get overcooked when you roast it at a high temperature anyway when you're doing the actual f- finished cook-off. So it's not really a problem. Does that make sense, Daz? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, okay. Henry Botts writes in, what's the difference between tomato paste in a tube that says 2X versus a small can, and can they be used interchangeably? It's a good question. I haven't used any of that uh, 2X tube-based stuff. I'm a can man. You ever you are you a tube lady? Mm-mm. 
Anyone, uh, anyone in the Discord, uh, well, Jack? I'm, I'm a, a tube. Yeah. You're a tube? Tubes, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the Internet's a series of tubes. Yes. <laughs> Why do you I'm, use I'm, a tube? I'm curious to hear your answer to this. Why do you use a tube? Um, I don't know. It's easy to open and close if I only need, like, a little bit for something. Wow. You know? When was the last time you only needed a little bit of tomato paste? I'm always like, I use so much tomato paste. A tablespoon or so, you know? Really? All right. Yeah. I write all of my recipes around uh, the six-ounce can of tomato paste. Huh. You know what I mean? Like, I'm always, like, using... So what's the difference? I don't have the tube. I would guess they're the same, though. I would guess that... I I Hmm. would guess that, like, maybe they're a little bit different, but I would guess that... uh, it's just like a dosing thing, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe, like you're saying, like it's easier to dose out the stuff that's in a tube. Like some cultures, like like have all of those like toothpaste tubes of stuff lying around anyway. Like they're used to cooking with them. The only thing I have in a tube in my kitchen is uh, callous caviar. You guys like that stuff? Yeah, yeah, I like never it. Had it. You never had it? Nils used to call mm-hmm. it Swedish toothpaste. It's like it's like <laughs> fish roe and salt and like oil, and it's got this like. It's got this kid with this preposterous grin on the front. Like, uh, like. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. You know what's good on? Crackers. You know what's not good on? Anything you're going to have. It really ruins wine. You should really have it when you're not drinking wine. It's not wine friendly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what is it, it is. Smoky? Yeah. Smoky, salty. <laughs> Something about cured fish products and most wines I don't, I don't like. Like, uh, I love. I love cured fish. I don't really, like, champagne and lox to me is, like, the worst combo. Like, carbonated mm. champagne. What about you, Stas? You hate that too, right? I don't think I like that. No. I mean, that's maybe the only situation where champagne's not the right answer. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, every other situation, it is. Uh, did I get this one? All right. Uh, Timothy Helmuth writes in, Hey, can you talk about cooking with essential oils? For steam distilled ingredients, what's the difference between food and non-food grade oils? Uh, is it a big risk to consume a minute amount of an edible oil that's not explicitly food grade? For some background, of assembling the ingredients to make the chili sauce in the Sichuan tofu uh, rice recipe, which I didn't click, so I don't know what it is. Uh, they use uh, oh my god, I can't pronounce that. Hmm. Oh, is that Cubeb? Look up, look up. Let's say a Cubeba. Is that Cubeb? Let's say a Cubeba for soap making or for aromatherapy, but nothing explicitly food grade. Thanks for making the show, Timothy. Is it is it Cubebs? Because I love Cubebs. Mm. I love Cubebs. Is that I what it is? So, yeah. I don't know Litsea though. What? Two questions in a row that I also have. This is this is great. What's Litsea? I, I have the same question. What's Litsea Cubeba? Cubeba. You guys looking it up? I don't have the internet's. Anyway, um, to answer your question, it's very difficult to dose those things. And also, essential. if the recipe specifically calls for an essential oil, that means that use the essential oil, try to find a food-grade one. They are minute quantities. I remember once we did a thing at the French Culinary Institute. We were trying to make cocktails and dishes with, uh, with essential oils. And this is back when the school still used styro cups. We still had styro cup, styrofoam cups for, like, drinking coffee out of and whatnot. And we were we took a dropper and we put dropper in, and it melted the styrofoam cup. Were you there for that one, Stas? Yeah. So in other words, like to try it, maybe sure. I, I don't feel qualified to give you an answer now. On the way out, because I have a minute and forty seconds, I'm going to read you the introduction from the Houseware Story: A History of the American Housewares uh, Industry by Earl Lilshi. Uh, from 1973, made by the National Housewares Manufacturers Association, whose managing director, Dolph Zapfel, wrote uh, this rather uh, breathless uh, introduction. And this is the most over-the-top anyone's ever been when talking about housewares. This is back when it was still cool to ruin the environment and, and build as much stuff as humanly possible before the first oil crisis. The publication of the houseware story is one of the proudest accomplishments of the National Houseware Manufacturers Association in its 34 years of service to the American housewares industry. 
We're sure this lively and comprehensive history of a fascinating business will prove to be of great interest to all members of the industry, veterans and newcomers alike. We hope that further that this important first will enrich their understanding of the industry and make them even more proud to be a part of the amazing conglomerate we call Housewares. It was 1968 that the industry leaders then serving as NHMA directors determined that the time had come for someone to chronicle this American economic miracle that is Housewares. Someone somewhere should write a history of this lusty, sprawling giant that has grown at ever-increasing speed in the years since World War II, reaching an annual volume of over $15 billion in 1972. They felt it was time that someone weave into words the narrative of an industry whose thousands of manufacturing plants stretch from coast to coast and whose myriad products are found in every room in every home in the United States. No small job. The principal question confronting the board of directors was who that someone would be. But of course the answer was obvious to all. Earl Lifshee, a man whose experience background and talent eminently qualified him to take on this major production. Fortunately for the housewares industry, Earl promptly accepted the commission of this exciting undertaking. He immediately began one of the most thorough and painstaking research tasks ever attempted. Earl's natural curiosity about anything and everything took over, his journalistic intuition came into full play, and he was off on what was later described as the most stimulating challenge of his almost half-century career of editorial and merchandising endeavors in the housewares industry. No one but those closest to him during these past four years can fully appreciate Earl's dedication to the detective work necessary to unearth the people, the facts, and the figures about an industry whose roots literally go back to the first man who cooked a piece of raw meat with a crudely improvised utensil. And no one will ever know the number of hours, nor the amount of intense effort Earl poured into producing this sweeping history of a many-faceted industry. The houseware story is, of course, dedicated to the thousands of men and women who make up the housewares industry, to those former and present manufacturers, representatives, buyers, and trade press editors, and others who contributed so much to this book. Without their help, this thorough and comprehensive story could not have been written. The National Housewares Manufacturers Association is proud to have played the initial role in the conception of this history of the American housewares industry, and we hope you will share our pride and take pleasure in the intriguing historical saga that Earl Lifshee has woven in the housewares story, Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues.